You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. On any given day, the average adult human being makes 35,000 conscious decisions. And there is a theory that when each of those decisions is made, a parallel universe is created based upon the opposite direction to the one you chose. Let's say it's a bright sunny day, and you have to decide whether to take the bus or take advantage of the sun and walk instead. So you decide to walk, and you arrive at work without incident. But in a newly created parallel universe, you decide to take the bus. And on that particular day... You just so happen to sit next to the man or woman of your dreams. So the flow of your life is forever altered based upon that decision. And the fascinating thing is that not every decision would result in such a life-changing outcome. The effects of some decisions would actually be quite small, but just enough to make your life in that parallel universe just ever so slightly different. Ten years so ago, just think, 11 I years ago, I made the decision to start, to start this, this podcast. podcast. What if I decided but not what to? if someone else had already decided to do it before me? Would, would I, I have chosen, chosen to do something to do else? Something How else? would my life have been How different? Would my life would have someone been else different? have decided to start a show and called The Twilight Zone Podcast? And just what would that other show called The Twilight Zone Podcast be like? Would Maybe it have been made in an earlier time, in a different place? Our lives, Our lives are a tapestry made up of the decisions that we make. But if this theory is correct, we are creating 35,000 parallel universes every day because of those decisions. Some so similar to ours that the difference is almost imperceptible. And others that are so different that they seem like a completely new reality where someone else is walking in our shoes. These are big things to ponder, but when we make the decision to enter the fifth dimension tonight, they're not questions that this episode seems to be asking. Not at first. We seem to be in for an altogether different tale when we meet the wife and daughter of astronaut Robert Gaines, understandably concerned about his impending journey into space. That was Colonel Conacher, honey. He says Daddy is just fine. Will he, will he be going up soon? In just about an hour, that's what Colonel Conacher said. Do you want to go back to sleep? I don't blame you. I can't sleep either. I'll tell you what. I'll make some coffee for me and some cocoa for you. And you wash your face and hands and comb your hair. And then we'll turn on the television set, okay? Okay. Unbeknownst to them, this is not a case of whether Robert Gaines will be back, but rather, which version of Robert Gaines will be back? And will their Robert Gaines forever be trapped trapped in the the parallel? parallel. In the vernacular of space, this is T-minus one hour. 60 minutes before a human being named Major Robert Gaines is lifted off from the Mother Earth and rocketed into the sky, farther and longer than any man ahead of him. Call this one one of the first faltering steps of man to sever the umbilical cord of gravity and stretch out a fingertip toward an unknown. Shortly, we'll join this astronaut named Gaines and embark on an adventure, because the environs overhead, the stars, the sky, the infinite space, are all part of a vast question mark known as 
the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on March 14, 1963, written by Rod Serling and directed by Alan Crossland Jr. So again, one of our more straightforward and slightly expositional Serling opener narrations but one that I think is giving me a vibe of a cousin of this episode and when the sky was opened. One that's suggesting that this is another episode about people stepping into the unknown and starting to prod at the rules of the universe that we really shouldn't be prodding at. So now we are once again pretty far down the road in the run of the Twilight Zone. Some of our longtime directors are leaving and some new blood is coming on board. Tonight, director Alan Crossland Jr. makes his Twilight Zone debut, and he's going to stick around for four episodes in total. And this is his only season four episode, but he'll return in season five, with the episodes The Old Man in the Cave, The Seventh is Made Up of Phantoms, and Ringading Girl. Now there isn't a huge amount of information about him out there, I think on the face of it, 73 directing credits doesn't seem like a lot when you stack it up against some other directors, but when you consider that those credits are the count of individual series names, but within those are multiple episodes of each of those series, for example, he directed 22 episodes of Bat Masterson, 19 episodes of Peter Gunn, 16 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and even a couple of episodes of The Outer Limits, you see that actually, he really did direct a lot of episodes of television. And his career spanned decades, and through the 70s and 80s, he directed episodes of favourites like The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, Wonder Woman, and The Fall Guy. So this really was a hard-working director, who put that time in the trenches making these bread and butter popular shows that everyone was enjoying at the time. So he might not have been a marquee name, but he was a man who made a lot of people happy with the television that he did direct. Now when we first meet Major Robert Gaines, he's rather awkwardly being helped into a horizontal moulded chair that appears to be helping him acclimatise to that position when he's in the ship. But the episode has this quite somber tone to it, and the music is like a ticking clock, signalling exactly where we are in the story of these people. It's not unique to a trip into space, it's that time before anything in life that might make us nervous or anxious, where pretty much all of the preparations are made. But all that's left to do is wait, make small talk, have those last minute conversations, and I think the episode does a good job of making us experience this nervous period with Robert Gaines and everyone else. Kind of an odd feeling, knowing I'll be moving around the earth for a week. Well, that's progress. Gus Grissom went 302 miles, Glenn made three orbits, Shira handled six, and you, Bobby boy, are gonna go round and round. And when you come back down, maybe we'll be that much closer to filing a claim on some more sky. Let's ponder for a moment where the seeds of this episode came from. 
Because of what time has now passed, it's easy to look at this as yet another episode of the Twilight Zone that features an astronaut or astronauts. But actually, when we compare it to something like Death Ship or Elegy, the parallel is presenting us with a much more realistic view of space travel. And that seems to be because it comes off the back of some very real-world events of the time. So let's just remember what Colonel Conacher just said. He said Gus Grissom went 302 miles, Glenn made three orbits, Shearer handles six, and you Bobby Boy are going to go round and round. This was an age where science fiction was becoming science fact, and sailing was sequelizing in fiction these real-life achievements by American astronauts. Gus Grissom was the pilot of the second US manned spaceflight on the Liberty Bell 7, and on July 21, 1961, in the break between seasons 2 and 3 of the Twilight Zone, the Liberty Bell 7 took a sub-orbital flight that lasted 15 minutes and 37 seconds. Then, on February 20th, 1962, right between the first airings of A Piano in the House and the last rites of Jeff Myrtlebank, John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth when he circled the globe three times in four hours and 56 minutes. And then Wally Shearer, on October 3rd, 1962, between seasons three and four of The Twilight Zone, orbited the Earth six times in the nine-hour Mercury Atlas 8 mission. So space travel at this time was about how long can we stay up there? How far can we go? Visiting the moon was still a few years away, but this was all happening there and then, and Sailing was writing this right on the back of it. In his story, Gaines is aiming to stay up there for a week and just keep going round and round. So let's see how successful this mission is. Phoebus 10, your voice transmissions are starting to fade very badly. Capcom, Capcom, this is Phoebus 10. I've lost contact with you. I've lost radar here, I've lost radar. We don't have contact here either. No contact at all. Capcom Tech calling Phoebus 10. Capcom, Capcom, this is Phoebus 10. So while the control room struggled to make contact with Major Gaines, let's meet the man who played him. Major Robert Gaines is played by Steve Forrest and he was born in 1925 in Huntsville, Texas. Now his birth name was William Forrest Andrews, so it seems that when he became an actor, he changed his first name and dropped his last name, Andrews. But one of his siblings, who was also an actor, didn't drop their last name. And that was his brother Dana Andrews, who we saw in the last episode, no time like the past. The two of them have appeared together in the film Seal Cargo in 1951, and I think if you close your eyes and listen to Steve Forrest's voice, that's when he is most like Dana Andrews to me, they sound very similar. So a young Steve Forrest initially embarked on a military career in the army and rose to the rank of sergeant, but when he left the military, 
Everything he did was connected with acting or in the arts in some way. At one point he was working as an apprentice carpenter and set builder in a San Diego theatre and one of the resident actors there saw some potential in him. So Steve was given a small part in a play as a bellboy and that actor's name was Gregory Peck. And he later became a contract play with MGM and with his 6 foot 3 frame and handsome features he enjoyed a long career mainly on the small screen until 2003 and then he passed away at the age of 87 in 2013. So how is he in this? Well I'm going to hold off on my thoughts about him for now until we get to a certain point in the episode. So let's stick a pin in that for now because the next time we see Major Gaines he's laying in a hospital bed with no memory of what happened or how he got back down to earth. Bill. All along I thought there was some kind of malfunction up there. Fuel or propulsion or just communication. Maybe the malfunction was closer to home. Maybe it was right up here between my ears. Maybe astronaut Robert Gaines went off the tracks. Maybe he couldn't cut the mustard. Look, you talk like that. You think like that and you'll come around to believing it. And that's stupid, Bob. We're dealing with nine natural laws plus a whole string of imponderables. And reasons are going to come out. Legitimate, rational reasons. Well, you just lie there and breathe through your nose. I'll call Helen again and tell her you're resting and you'll be home soon. Will I? Will I be home? Yeah. Unless you persuade all the people around here that you need an attendant. Dream good. I'll see you later. So sailing is sowing seeds of possibility here for what is to come, keeping us off balance with these possibilities. So when Gaines is acting strange later on, perhaps we'll wonder if he's just had some sort of breakdown. It's one of the possibilities that's on offer. But what we end up seeing next is that when Major Gaines returns home, he keeps noticing that things aren't quite how he remembers them. Things like he doesn't recall there being a fence in front of his house, and his rank is now different from what he remembers. I want to say something to you now. I, um... I don't know what happened up there. I have no idea. I know you don't want to talk about it, that's why we haven't said anything, but uh, something must have happened, Bob. Some delusions. Some distortions, like that fence outside the house. I don't remember it. And yet you said it had been there when we bought the house. And that business with Bill Conacher. He told me he'd called you before the flight. He made it a point to tell me. And then afterward, afterward he said there'd been no such phone conversation. It's unimportant. It's insignificant, really. And yet... And yet it all seems to be part of some sort of crazy pattern. Now I do wonder if Sailing is riffing on some sci-fi audience expectations here and I'll come back to that in a moment as well. First let's meet the woman who is having a difficult time reconciling the man who left with the man who came back. 
Helen Gaines is played by Jacqueline Scott, and she would have been in her early 30s by this point. And if we delve into her history, it's clear that she had performing in her blood from an early age. She won a tap dancing competition at the age of three, and began acting professionally in a small theatre company at the age of 17. And then she moved to New York where she continued to study acting, so she was very much an actor's actor, working on Broadway and on screen. And one of her first movie roles was in the William Castle gimmicky shocker, Macabre, whose poster boasted that audience members were insured for a thousand dollars in case they died from fright. And it was on that set where she met her husband, Jean Lesser, who she was married to for 62 years, which is no mean feat in Hollywood. And with 102 acting credits to her name, she really was one of our hard-working actors of the day. And while this is her only Twilight Zone, she appeared in several of the most beloved shows of the 50s, 60s and 70s, which included The Outer Limits, Planet of the Apes and The Fugitive, where she played Richard Kimball's sister. And while she did slow down some in the 80s and took the 90s off for the most part, she retired from the screen after two one-off roles in 2004 and 2009, and unfortunately we've only just lost Jacqueline Scott this year, on July 23rd, 2020, at the age of 89. And I like her very much in this, I think she plays her part in quite an understated way at times. Her scenes at the beginning especially, where she's on the phone to Colonel Conacher and pretending that everything is okay, are nicely done. And then when she's gently trying to break it to her husband, that he just doesn't seem right, I think she shows a lot of acting talent here. And Martin Grams Jr. quotes her in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, and she said, I was thrilled to be doing the show, because it was one of the most popular shows on the air at the time, and rightfully so, with its wonderful scripts. This was a particularly special episode since, as you know, Rod Serling wrote it. I was happy to be working again with Steve Forrest, since we had done the pilot of The Wide Country together, and added bonus to the whole experience, was that Rod Serling called me afterwards and said that he had never written a script for a woman but was going to write one for me. It never materialised, but the idea of it was a lovely compliment. So in this first half, what I really like is that there are several possibilities for what's going on here. Has Gaines cracked when he's went up to space or is something else going on? Now, let's go downstairs and have a cup of coffee. Don't let a, a white fence and a promotion end the world for you. If that's as far as it goes, I'll try not to. But what if... What if other things... So sometimes Steve Forrest is playing it almost like Major Gaines has come back wrong. I think this is the misdirection Sailing was using before, maybe riffing on those stories that have come before them, like the Quatermass experiment, where an astronaut goes away and he comes back and gradually transforms. I think that's one of the things that Rod Sailing is putting on the table, but not explicitly so. It's all about the audience trying to second guess what's going to happen. 
So in this scene where Gaines kisses his wife Helen, we see that when they kiss, Helen backs away. They can reason away all of the other strange little things that have happened since Robert has come back, but when they kiss, she feels that something is different. It's as if she's kissing another man. And the producer Bert Granite said, Censorship was so strict at that time. We tried something that was a shade too subtle, but basically, I didn't want him to find out he was on the wrong planet until he went to bed with the woman he thought was his wife. The sexual habits were different. There's a suggestion of it, but it's insufficient. Unless you're looking for it, I don't think you'll find it. So let's take a little detour here because that is a quote from the producer Bert Granite, but as we know, when the great book Houghton left the Twilight Zone after season 3, the producer that took over was Herbert Hirschman. Now he produced season 4 up until Printer's Devil, but that had an associate producer, Murray Goldman, on it too. Then the next episode, No Time Like the Past, doesn't credit Herbert Hirschman as producer, just Murray Goldman as associate producer. And then for this episode, we have Bear Granite as producer. Now Granite is significant to the Twilight Zone because he produced the time element, which was that backdoor Twilight Zone pilot, which appeared on the Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. But why all of a sudden does he appear as producer of the show and why does Herbert Hirschman still have future Twilight Zone producing credits after this one? So Mark Zickery in the Twilight Zone companion documents what exactly happened, he says, On January 1st, 1963, Herbert Hirschman's contract with CBS expired. At the same time, Hirschman received an offer from Herbert Brodkin, with whom he'd worked on Playhouse 90. Brodkin's company was about to begin production in London on Espionage, a series to be aired on both NBC in America and on British television. Brodkin wanted Hirschman as producer of the show, and Hirschman accepted. And Hirschman said, The opportunity of going to Europe, I'd never lived or worked there before, superseded my interest in doing another three or four Twilight Zones. So then the production job went to Bert Granith, and I think the reason why Herbert Hirschman still has producing credits in the future is that, as we know by now, the Twilight Zone wasn't necessarily made in the order that it was aired, so I think what was to come is probably already in the can at this point. But unfortunately, this was an episode of the Twilight Zone where plagiarism reared its ugly head again, and Martin Grams Jr. documents this in Unlocking the Door to a television classic. And he writes, On July 11th, 1963, Ralph Nelson wrote to Rod Serling and said, A couple of days ago, Jerry Saltzman called me regarding a possible plagiarism claim on The Parallel. So the rerun of The Parallel was cancelled because of this. And the story that he was talking about was a story that was ironically called the carbon copy. And Martin Grams Jr. goes on to write, After digging into his files, Sailing found a copy of an undated release signed by Messino, who wrote the carbon copy. The release accompanied a synopsis of the story. Copies of all correspondence between employees of Cayuga Productions and Stephen Messino and his agent regarding the submission of the story 
were also taken out of the files, and they ended up settling this out of court for the sum of six and a half thousand dollars. Um, I'd like uh, Colonel William Conacher, please. Bill Conacher to ask him if he'd like to. Like to what? Come over for dinner. So this is the point in the episode where I really like that there's potentially several possibilities here. Now I mentioned before that I think sailing is riffing on things like the Quatermass experiment and that he's just implying that perhaps Robert Gaines has come back wrong and he's undergoing some sort of transformation, not physically, but perhaps inside, or that he's a completely different being or something along those lines. All of these possibilities are on the table. It's as if he's a ticking time bomb waiting for an alien presence to emerge, or has he just had a breakdown? It could be any one of these things. Now, of course, the season four episode question has to come up. Is this an episode that's too long? I actually think that Sailing uses the time really well here. He's putting out these possibilities under the audience's noses. And on a cerebral level, there's quite a lot to think over at this point. And then we get to that halfway plot twist. Really a very strange collection of delusions. A white picket fence, a story, his own rank, and the last thing he said was he doubted very much if President Kennedy would pin any medals on him. President who? Kennedy. Someone named John Kennedy. Who's John Kennedy? Someone who Colonel Gaines has decided is President of the United States. And I share your bewilderment. I never heard of him either. So I really like the use of this halfway twist by Rod Sailing. This is the point where an episode like Third from the Sun would end. The point where you realise that everything you've just watched, you're watching from the wrong perspective. We've been viewing it from the point of view that everything else was the same, but he was different, when in fact, he is the constant in this. And when we have the twist revealed, there's still a good 20 minutes of episode left to go. Could they have told this story in the length of a non-season 4 Twilight Zone? Perhaps, but I think this is a fascinating way of telling a Twilight Zone story. What happens after the twist? What you just told me is fantastic. How can you possibly? It's incredible. Incredible. I helped build that spacecraft. I know it very well. And this one, it's not the same one we sent off. It's almost a twin to it, down to the very last nut and bolt, but it's simply not the same spacecraft. It's a different vehicle. It's almost as if it came out of the same mold, but every now and then. And the wiring, and the control panel, and in the structure, a 
as a tiny insignificant alteration. You add them all up and you come up with one very irrevocable fact. Colonel Gaines went up in one spacecraft, but he's obviously come back in another. That leaves us with two alternatives. One, Colonel Gaines actually blacked out and has no knowledge of what occurred. Or two, that Colonel Gaines is not who we think he is. So how feasible is all of this? That a person could jump into a parallel world, a world that is similar to our own, but decisions have been made that are as small as whether someone decides they have sugar in their coffee, or as large as JFK not being the President of the United States. The television show Sliders was built on this very premise, and they used it to great effect, but is there any real world credibility to it? Well I did look it up and it gets very complicated depending on where you look for it, but the website exemplar.com does a good job of breaking it down for people like me. And they give three examples of where this is supposed to have happened in the real world. In the first example, it says sometime during the summer of 1954, a well-dressed individual arrived in Tokyo on a flight from Europe. This would seem normal, but when he went through customs, he was stopped by a customs official because his passport showed that he came from a country called Tered. What was even more interesting was that the passport had been stamped indicating that he had made previous trips to Japan. The problem is, the country that he came from doesn't exist. At first the stranger became upset and the official worried that he'd made a mistake, retrieved a map. The traveller was perplexed when he noticed that his country was not there, located between Spain and France. Instead, the only nation that was there in place of his country was Andorra. When he was further interrogated, they found that even his driver's license was issued in Tored. Waiting further investigation, he was then put in a hotel for the night, but by morning, he was not there. He'd vanished, along with his belongings and the documentation, even though two officers were placed outside the door and the room was on the 15th floor. The second example says that when Lorena Garcia got up out of bed one day in the summer of 2008 in her apartment in Madrid, little did she know, life was about to change in a bizarre way, and it began the very moment that she woke up. Her bed sheets were not the same ones that she remembered when she went to bed the night before. Initially, she ignored it, even though she was disturbed by the change. But this was only the beginning. More dramatic changes were yet to come. The drive to work was uneventful, but when she arrived, she found out that she now worked at a different apartment, in a different location in the same building. Her manager, whom she did not know and never met, somehow knew her. When she realized she was no longer at the department that she worked at for the past 20 years, she had to look at the company directory to find out where she was supposed to be. This event was so unsettling that she went back home claiming illness. If this wasn't weird enough, Lorena was about to be hit by another change that would be more personal. She had broken off a relationship about a year and a half earlier, but now her boyfriend had no idea that this had happened, and it doesn't end there. For the past few months, she had begun dating again with a man that was a local in her neighborhood, but when she tried to find him, he didn't exist. When she filed a report concerning his disappearance, the police told her 
there was no record of him. And finally they tell the story of Frederick Dodson, who says he's an expert on this very subject, and who authored the book, Parallel Universes of Self. And he says that one day when he went to a salon for a haircut, he noticed a building next door. Since he had gone to the salon regularly every four weeks or so, he was surprised to see it there. Previously, it was an empty lot, with a lawn and a park bench. Now after four weeks, a building was now standing in that spot. When he asked the employees that worked in the salon, they said that it was built about five years before. Something, something happened. I know you're not going to believe this. I'm not absolutely certain that I believe it myself. There's another dimension. I don't know how it exists or where it exists. But there's another world parallel to ours. The same people, the same places, most of the same chronology of events, except now and then there's something a little bit different. How do you know all this? Because I was there, General. I was there for almost a week. That's impossible. We only lost you for about six hours. We had contact with you all the rest of the time. I can't help that, sir. During that six hours, I lived out a week. Doing what? Looking at our counterparts, looking at us. Us? Us, as we exist in a parallel world. One that exists alongside, but which we can't see. It's the world I stumbled into. I don't know how. Some kind of space-time continuum, some warpage. But there's a doorway up there somewhere into it. It exists. So in the end, Gain seems to slip back into his own reality, or at least one that is so close that he can't tell the difference yet. And as we close out, it seems that his other dimensional counterpart will be paying a visit to his world. In the Twilight Zone companion, Mark Zickrey says, although an interesting concept, the parallel suffers from flat acting, particularly in the lead. As a result, what might have been as engrossing as and when the sky was opened, never generates much energy. I couldn't disagree with that assessment more. This episode does walk some of the same ground as when the sky was opened, where it says that sometimes when we step out of where nature has intended us to be, we are stepping into things we don't understand, where rules exist that we cannot comprehend. But it takes it in a different direction, and what Zikri calls flat, I call realistic, or at least television realistic. This is the whole point, Sailing is building a story on what's recently been in the news, and adding an extra layer to it. It's not about creating a world that is so different to our own that Gaines notices it straight away. It's about the small things. This is an exercise in subtlety. It's about the small decisions that we make, creating small waves in these other realities, and the big decisions that we make, making bigger waves. And I disagree that the performances are flat as well. Jacqueline Scott pitches her performance perfectly, sometimes the worried wife waiting for her husband to come home, other times scared of the man who did come home. And Steve Forrest isn't flat either. In an episode that is building upon the reality of what's going on in space travel at the time, 
He is more aligned with the genuine astronaut than the kind of astronauts you hear in radio programs like Dimension X sometimes where the space travellers are more like the ham and eggs working guys you'd have fixing your car than actual astronauts. If you look up any of the real life astronauts that this episode mentions and look at what they went on to do, often they went into politics, you'll see that they are aligned with this portrayal, the respectable, clean-cut, upstanding American hero type. So for me this is everything that I want from a season 4 mini Twilight Zone movie. It meets expectations, but subverts them too. And while I love when Sailing is writing a story that has something to say morally about the world we live in, I absolutely love when he just tries to tell a strange tale too. He uses his running time well here, and while sure you could trim some scenes out here and there, that's true of most things. There's no filler, just a gradual building of intrigue and a lingering thought in the mind of the viewer about all all the crossroads that we face every day and the decisions that we have to make. This episode is a reminder to always try and make the best decision so that the version of you who is living the best life is this version of you and not the version who is living in the parallel. Major Robert Gaines, a latter-day voyager, just returned from an adventure. Submitted to you without any recommendations as to belief or disbelief. You can accept or reject. You pay your money and you take your choice. But credulous or incredulous, don't bother to ask anyone for proof that it could happen. The obligation is a reverse challenge. Prove that it couldn't. This happens to be the Twilight Zone. My friends, it has been a longer wait than I intended uh, for the next episode of the Twilight Zone podcast. I think it's safe to say that I will not meet my target of completing season four in 2020. But I guess for a lot of us, it's not the year we imagined it to be either. So I hope everyone is happy and well. I hope you're all doing okay. Um, More than okay. I hope you're doing really well. And... Everything is fine here. I've had a couple of emails from people asking if I'm alright and and things. I'm absolutely fine. I'm absolutely fine. Just, it's a busy old life sometimes. And I've been renovating the studio here where I record the podcast, amongst other things. So, it's it's a nice comfortable place to hopefully get more podcasting done. So, that's what I've been doing. And I just want to thank some friends of the show for... Uh, still supporting the Twilight Zone podcast even though it hasn't been on the air much so to new members over at the After Hours Club uh, I might be doubling up on some of these I might have mentioned them already but just in case I'll mention them again I want to thank Eric Saunders uh, Mark Kelly Scott The PJ Joe Brown Erin Hickey uh, Mark Pepper and Sage Hoffman for all joining the After Hours Club which is the Patreon page for supporters of the Twilight Zone podcast. And you can get there at patreon.com slash Podcast. Now, occasionally people have said to me, you know, I want to send something to support the show, but I don't really want to, you know, have a monthly bill come out for something like Patreon. And I completely get that. Um, but if you are one of those people and you want to get some extra content... Patreon have now done yearly memberships, so you can go over there and you can 
pledge for a year in one go and get access to all of the podcasts and things that I've done over there so far, but also for the next upcoming year as well. So there's various options over there for you to check out if you would prefer to support the show in that way instead. Okay, so that is enough from me. I uh, I have to apologize. There seemed to be some interference uh, on the show earlier on. It was almost like someone else was talking on it. Uh, but we seem to have got through it. We seem to have got through it. So let's go over to a friend of the show, Spencer, who has some feedback on the parallel. Hi, Tom. I find the fourth season of The Twilight Zone to be quite an enigma. For most of us, we haven't seen all of the episodes, and we think the hour-long format draws out the story too long, and it kind of loses that Twilight Zone charm that we've come to know and love. But I find that the parallel is one of the episodes that makes an exception. I've felt very captivated by the story, and it kind of expanded on that, and when the sky was opened kind of feel of an episode. Uh, It also played to, I feel like, the audience really well in the sense that we've all at one point or another thought about, is the world we're living in truly reality? Or is there one right next door where things just look a little bit differently? And while I believe that Steve Forrest's performance wasn't maybe the best I've seen in The Twilight Zone, I, I wouldn't certainly put it in the bottom half either. It was just okay. And I think that's the part of the episode where it fell a little flat for me, but I do love a good story where there's parallel universes or time travel or something, but I think I would feel the same way as Robert Gaines did in this episode, where you come home and you see your daughter not reacting to you or being scared of you, little details about your own life or your own house that don't make sense or add up. I think it's a really interesting concept, and I'm really happy I watched this episode. So thank you, Tom, and I'll talk to you later. Rod Serling, creator of The Twilight Zone, will tell you about next week's story after this message. If you want to get your thoughts onto the show, then send me a clip to tom at thetwilightzonepodcast.com of around five minutes or less with your thoughts on the next episode. So let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what that is. A new author joins the ranks of The Twilight Zone crew, when John Furia Jr. gives us several stunningly new twists to a classic character in I Dream of Jeannie. Join Howard Morris, Patricia Berry, and Loring Smith as they take their trip into the Twilight Zone. Who? 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 Who are you expecting? Who? I'm the genie of the lamp, that's who. Aladdin, magic, the whole bit. If, if you are the Genie, then I must be the master of the lamp. Big deal. Master of the lamp. All right, you got yourself a free wish. I can't believe it. Anything I want in the whole world. Anything. But only one wish.